everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for joining me on this Sunday evening. Hope your weekend is going well. So this week, I want to talk about what a Biden official has described as the liberal world order. And we'll play the clip in, in a second. But basically, this is uh, Brian Deese. He's a he's Biden's top economic advisor. And he was asked on CNN, what do you have to say to Americans who can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years, as a result of the crisis in Ukraine? And Dietz's response was, well, this is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. And this is, let's just play the clip. What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay four eighty-five a gallon for months, if not years. This is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. So that's Brian D. speaking to CNN this week. Now, a major theme of my work since I started covering Russiagate was, was that under the guise of protecting democracy from this perceived Russian threat, U.S. elites have actually been undermining democracy. Uh, using the specter of Russia to, for example, essentially subvert the result of the 2016 election in which Trump won. But because there were powerful factions of the elite class who didn't like Trump, the Democrats were humiliated by him. And meanwhile, elements of the national security state, including on the Republican side, didn't like just how embarrassing he was, including how uh, occasionally honest he was about what the U.S. was doing abroad. And they didn't like the fact that, for example, he would say that we want to pull troops out of Syria. And even when he was convinced to keep troops in Syria, they also didn't like the fact that he admitted the truth, which is that we're there to steal the oil. So there was a convergence of powerful elements there that actually, under the guise of protecting the U.S. from supposed Russian interference, they were enabling serious security state and political interference in democracy by basically constraining Trump by accusing him of being a Russian agent and accusing Russia of brainwashing millions of Americans into voting for him and sowing chaos. And they've also used the specter of Russia to undermine free speech. So that's how Hunter Biden's laptop, the stories about that were censored. And Julian Assange currently being caged in a London prison or or in a British prison. He's also constantly uh, painted as a Russian asset. And that's a way to normalize what really is the real aim, which is to attack him for doing genuine journalism and silence and censor the explosive revelations that he's unearthed over the course of his his career. And so to be able to carry out all this, you have to have a real contempt for normal people. If you think that you can basically blame all your domestic problems on Russia and try to you know reverse the results of elections essentially by invoking the Russian boogeyman. You have to have a real contempt for average people, and feel that the only way to control them is to present constantly the specter of outside threats, whether it's Russia, whether it was Iraq under Saddam Hussein. I mean, this is a, a recurrent theme. And so Brian Deese here is saying to people, you know, who might be complaining about having to pay higher gas. He's saying to them, basically, this doesn't matter. The liberal world order completely overrides all of your needs as a person, uh, including your right to you know, live a, a life that meets your basic needs. That doesn't matter. What matters most is the liberal world order, which essentially means 
a U.S.-led uh, world where U.S. hegemony prevails, because that to me is fundamentally what the Ukraine proxy war is about. I think this this whole thing could have been avoided if simply the U.S. had let Ukraine declare neutrality before the war and resolve the war on the Donbass that was going on for eight years uh, that started after the 2014 U.S.-backed coup. But because the U.S. would not budge on those issues, then we had to have this horrible conflict breakout uh, in Ukraine, which has caused so much suffering, especially in Ukraine, but also around the world. And those global impacts are now being, uh, they're harder to suppress. So just recently, there's an article in the New York Times called Skyrocketing Global Fuel Prices Threaten Livelihoods and and Social Stability. It uh, points out that as a result of the Russian invasion, and particularly the sanctions on Russia that have followed, that, quote, gas and oil prices have galloped with an astounding ferocity. So directly because of the sanctions on Russia that were imposed in response to its invasion of Ukraine, prices for these basic commodities have massively increased. And so what does that mean? Well, for the world's most vulnerable people, that's who, that's who this hits the most. Let me read from the, uh, the New York Times. As is, as is usually the case with crises, the poorest and most vulnerable will feel the harshest effects. The International Energy Agency warned last month that higher energy prices have meant an additional 90 million people in Asia and Africa do not have access to electricity. And all this is known to people inside the White House, but they simply just don't care. And in fact, there was this uh, article in the Washington Post recently, which I think I read last time, but I'll quote this again because... It's, uh, it's so telling. It's, it's based on conversations with U.S. officials. And it says this. Uh, officials have described the stakes of ensuring Russia cannot swallow up Ukraine, an outcome officials believe could embolden Putin to invade other neighbors or even strike out at NATO members. Uh, the stakes of this, quote, are so high that the administration is willing to countenance even a global recession and mounting hunger. So that's the Washington Post making it plain that people inside the White House know that their proxy war in Ukraine will continue a global recession and lead to mounting hunger, but they don't care because to them, the cost of denying Russia a victory or or the the importance of denying uh, Russia a victory is more important than a global recession and mounting hunger. They just don't care. And that, again, speaks to their contemptuous attitude toward people around the world, which in the liberal world order, they just do not matter. Only liberals, only elite liberals basically matter in the world order, not the rest of the world. And um, now what's interesting is, you know, Democrats like Ro Khanna, who have been on board with every single measure to date to fund the proxy war, they're starting to, I think, realize the damage this is doing, not just to the world, but possibly to their own political fortunes. So this is Ro Khanna in, in the Washington Post. It's an article uh, uh, mentioning him. It says this, Ro Khanna said that while he applauds the administration's objective in stopping Russia from seizing Kiev, the U.S. cannot resign itself to, quote, a prolonged, never-ending conflict that is wreaking havoc on the American economy and the global economy. And Connor goes on to say, I believe we should declare victory for the president's efforts in standing up for a sovereign Ukraine. We should say we won. The Russians lost. They did not achieve their fundamental objective. But Democrats, uh, according to Washington Post uh, rendering of Kana, are not resigned to support Ukraine at all costs. And Kana goes on, quote, people don't want to see a resigned attitude that this is just going to go on as long as it's going to go on. 
what is the plan on the diplomatic front? It's a great question. It's interesting that Rokan is only asking this now and not before the war when this could have been avoided and not during the weeks of the war when Rokan was voting was voting to fund the proxy war. But better late than never. Now, it's funny, of course, that he's saying that you know we need to, we need to declare victory because we've achieved our goals and Russia didn't seize Kiev. I don't see much evidence that Russia ever wanted to seize Kiev. I think if they wanted to do that, they would have sent more troops. But that's another matter. So th- that's his way of coping, I think, with the fact that the U.S. actually hasn't achieved its goals. But regardless, at least he's recognizing that the proxy war that he's voted for, quote, is wreaking havoc on the American economy and the global economy. And instead of asking, you know, what is the plan? He should be lobbying openly for a plan. He should be putting forth a plan on how to stop the war in Ukraine. But I, de- I doubt he'll be doing that. And meanwhile, look, the people outside of Ukraine who will feel this the most are foremost, you know, um, uh, low-income people in in the global south. But also, Russia's neighbors are facing a major crisis because the U.S. has sabotaged the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline and also forced them to cut back, essentially, on Russian gas. So what does that mean in Germany, very close to Russia? This is from Bloomberg today. And the headline is, the headline is... Germany's union head warns of collapse of entire industries. I'll just read the first two paragraphs. Top German industries could face collapse because of cuts in the supplies of Russian natural gas. The country's top union official warned before crisis talks with the chancellor on Monday. And he says this. His name is Yasmin Fahimi, head of the German Federation of Trade Unions. And he said this, quote, because of the gas bottlenecks, entire industries are in danger of permanently collapsing. Aluminum, glass, the chemical industry. Such a collapse would have massive consequences for the entire economy and jobs in Germany. And this right here is the liberal world order in a nutshell. Liberals who control the world pursue their hegemonic projects and the rest of the world suffers. And Collateral damage, such as, you know, Ukrainians being used as cannon fodder, um, millions of refugees being created in Ukraine, entire German industries possibly collapsing, higher gas prices at home, higher food prices around the world, which sentences even more people to death. All those are subordinate to U.S. hegemony, which is the overriding motive behind the so-called liberal world order. So it was refreshing to hear Brian Deese of the Biden administration make that so plain. And let's just hear him say it one more time and then we'll open it up to calls. What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years. This is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. We'll- so that's uh, that's what it is. That's him making a point. All right. Let's take some calls. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, hey. Um, God, I'm calling a lot. Anyway, I'll try and make it quick. So, you know, here's the thing. I'm, we have a few differences over this whole um contras these events and so forth but the one thing i'm kind of mystified about and i'd love to hear you and you know maybe i'm being unfair but it just strikes me that, you know when you're talking about diplomacy and so forth i think you you're missing the central issue here which is we don't have any good intentions here right that um the reason that ukraine is attractive to let's say 
Gershman, the head of the NED or whatever, is it's perfect because the place was divided, right? So, you know what I mean? Like, we've had eight years of proof of this, that we are incapable of, um, you know, having anything but a destructive attitude towards this because, as you point out, it's a proxy war. So I don't really understand how you can say this could be solved diplomatically because we have no intention of solving it diplomatically it's you know it's everything that you think is a is a bug is actually a feature to the people in 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 power you know so should people who are not in power not call for diplomacy it's a good question what i'm saying is i don't think we're capable of it right i mean the the russians were clearly capable of it that's why you had minsk too the french and the germans appeared to be capable of it but of course you know they did, did nothing to guarantee it because they're completely controlled so i i guess what i'm saying is it seems like um you know you seem to be staving off the real horror of this which is that you know the things that you rightly point out which is these people are being used as cannon fodder and you know that's the horror of it and i, I just it just strikes me that um you're giving false hope. Let me make make it plain. I think you're giving false hope by this idea that the West is capable of any constructive I- interaction with Russia because of all the things that you pointed out, right? Well, look, I, I just think that I don't expect Biden to do anything on his own. But if if there could be sufficient public pressure, if people could be fed up with funding this awful proxy war and enduring all of its horrible consequences. I think anything is possible. I um I just don't I don't see a point in ruling out outcomes based on how evil our rulers are. Otherwise there's no hope for anything. And I just if I mean I think we might as well since we're here, we might as well try to change policy in a better direction. That doesn't mean it's actually gonna happen. But um you know, I think there are times when public pressure can actually change things. I mean it hasn't happened recently. And the anti-war movement in the U.S. has been completely destroyed. Like, the left is a joke. I mean, we all know that. But I think it's at least worth pointing out that there are really simple solutions that could end this war if they were pursued. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Like, the least thing I want to do is make people as uh, kind of helpless as I feel. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's understandable. It's I, I yeah. think it's totally... Of course, it's understandable to feel helpless and hopeless. But uh, the question is, you know, uh, does that lead us to do nothing? And I just don't. For me, that's not how it, how it works for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks for your comments. I appreciate. It. Okay, Tim. Thanks for the call. Great to hear from you. you okay. Too. Hey, what's up, Aaron? Hi. How's it going? So I, I, I kind of have a question that, that revolves around the concept of liberalism, right? So mm-hmm. how I define liberalism is basically deregulation and allowing those who have economic merit for driving policy, right? So the Democratic Party, basically they're corporatists who have a slant where they use identity as kind of the, the offering, right? That, that becomes kind of their, their go-to in every single situation, but there's never any economic changes for regular people. The Republicans, on the other hand, they have an atavist attitude and kind of a, a nostalgic jump back to the 1950s and the post-war era. And they use religion. They use uh, kind of a, a, a glazed over definition of, of actual rights. 
And they're no different because they're still holding up economic liberalism in the same way. Okay. Yeah. Trump is also no different because he supported he put an executive order in which basically supported deregulation and held up the financial industry like the golden calf that it is in America. He had no different opinion on imperialism. And the only difference is that he was driven by celebrity, which meant that at certain times he had to do things that were sort of human to make himself popular. Right. And I agree yeah. with you. The left is a joke is the joke. So my question to you is, as a person who's kind of nauseated by what I see, where does liberalism not exist in the United States? Where does liberalism not exist in the United States? Um, Well, I don't know where it doesn't. I'm asking you because I feel like you're smarter than I am. uh, I mean... uh, I don't know. Like what comes to mind for me is at least we still have like, um, like firefighters. That's still a social service. Uh, hasn't been completely co-opted and privatized. I mean, there are, there is some semblance of a social welfare state, uh, Medicare, things like that. And, um, but yeah, in, in cultural life and the, like, uh, the huge importance now in, in left liberal culture that is put on, identitarian issues uh it's hard to step outside of that now i mean that's a big thing and actually there's a clip i wanted to play from um boris johnson who was talking about vladimir putin and the war in ukraine and it's like now even boris johnson this like right-wing buffoon is now appropriating the language of liberalism to defend his hegemonic projects in in ukraine let me let me uh, play it for you guys Need more women in positions of power. If Putin was a woman, which I, he obviously isn't, but uh, if he were, I really don't think he would have embarked on a crazy macho war of, ingre- of invasion uh, and violence in the way that he has. If you want a perfect example of toxic masculinity, it's, it's, what, it's what he's doing in, in Ukraine. Boris Johnson feminist icon explaining that the war in Ukraine is a result of toxic masculinity. I don't think he would say that it was toxic masculinity for MBS to invade you to invade uh, Yemen and slaughter thousands of people and cause a famine because Boris Johnson has been arming that invasion. And I don't think Boris Johnson would say the same thing about the dirty war in Syria, which the UK also was heavily involved in. Nor would he say it was toxic masculinity to use Ukraine for a proxy war in the last eight years, because as I've talked about a lot, the proxy war in Ukraine actually didn't begin with Russia's invasion. It began with the U.S. backed coup and the war in the Donbass that has resulted since. But that's what, what he's doing there is, I think, very emblematic of the way liberal discourse is going. It's like using, you know, uh, genuine identitarian issues like toxic masculinity is a thing, but then using it to justify their own toxicity and their own warmongering. And that's what gets elevated as the, you know, issues that we need to discuss and not, you know, I don't disagree with you on that point, but there is one thing that I do disagree about. Okay. So, so what I think, what I, I, I think, 
to be honest with you, I think you're giving me some answers, and I think those answers are either on the sacrificial altar or they've been totally co-opted. So if we look at the like social services, like the fire department, and we look at you know police, we do see that they're first of all, like I live in New York City, right? I don't know where you are exactly, but the firefighters in in New York City, for the most part, the top brass consists of basically white men and they get salaries that are yo they're fucking ridiculous and the people that are the boots on the ground they're a little bit different but again it becomes a meritocracy for extraction of wealth from you know the the public commons or or our municipalities they're not they're not exactly the same thing and we could say that definitely about the police department because the police department in itself you know it's not like these guys don't get paid but they are not in there for the right reasons. They're not in there for protecting and serving. They're there for wealth extraction. Being a part of law enforcement has become the most common thing for for a lot of uh, middle class people. And I'm not just saying that there's a suburban white middle class, but there's also people from the inner city that have that have that have attained some semblance of lower middle class and now are getting funneled into into law enforcement. And that becomes yet another way for them to kind of keep the line as it stands with private property and 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 the the real estate market and holding the line right it's not something to be looked at as a as a as something that liberalism doesn't have its hands in so i really don't think that there is anywhere that liberalism is not involved in so maybe instead of having conversations about toxic masculinity or gender pronouns i think it's time that we you know pull ourselves into a discussion about what really sucks in America, which is the manufactured inflation, the unpayable debt, and dog shit wages. Right. That's really good. I I totally agree. I totally agree. Thanks for the call. Thank you for keeping it at least real, you know? Thank you. I do my best. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Steven. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yeah. Lovely. So um, I wanted to revisit Tim's question, but from a completely different angle. Uh, And really, I was just curious from your standpoint, who is the action with? You were talking about populist change. And like the last time I'm aware of historically that resulting in positive um, social change is the 1960s and the civil rights movement. And (laughs) my conception of that is that last time we had something like that, they just assassinated everyone involved with that movement. So like you you were talking about Ro Khanna and I agree, he's kind of a hypocrite, but like, who do you think the action rests with here? How do we get from where we are to where we need to be? Well, you know, I think often about the fact that Dr. King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton were all assassinated because I do wonder whether that's just a model for the future that if anyone gets to their level of influence where they're really trying to change things at a fundamental level, at a class level and talking about imperialism and not, not just the, you know, the huge victories of civil rights, which some elites in the U S were on board with because they realized that they could capitalize. But, um, you know, will will they, will, will anyone in that position just be killed as well? Like all those three heroes were. You know, and well, it, it's, it's a, it's a good question. And so look, but I do think there've been victories since, for example, in the 1980s, it was recently the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of a huge March in central park against nuclear weapons. 
And that movement had an impact. It did. It helped lead to the arms control treaties of the 1980s, which, by the way, the U.S. has now <laughs> destroyed under Trump, especially uh, like the INF Treaty. But that was a big victory. And that was a scary time in which I mean, I, I was very young then, but uh, I just know from um, my vague memory and just from speaking to people who were active then, that was a scary time. There were so many more nuclear weapons then than there even were now. And the U.S. and Soviet Union, there was all this tension. And so it was a huge victory, I think, for grassroots movements to win those accords. And in the 80s also, there were movements against the dirty wars in Central America. And there have been other other may. victories since. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the, the chief blocker I see to that is the organizational principle, right? Is like during the 1960s, we organized around, you know, figureheads and, and leaders. And uh, those were disrupted, you know, through direct assassination. But now they have much more, I guess, pernicious tools to disrupt the actual organization of, I guess, positive social change to begin with. They actually get it at a much earlier stage, right? Where people are just trying to find neighbors who they agree with, right? And they use social media to disrupt people, you know, talking about various topics like that. So, like, I guess, like, again, you know, theory of change style, uh, who do you think the action rests with? Average people. Okay, people. fair enough. Unions. Unions. I mean, uh, certainly this current model of uh, the Democratic Party and celebrities and uh you know like media personalities that's not it that's not going to work it has to come from uh you know unions and working people and, and mass movements i think i mean the places that inspire me most are places like haiti like one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere and they've twice elected someone who comes from the poor majority jean bertrand Aristide. and of course that means that twice he's been overthrown in u.s back coups but if it's possible there why wouldn't it be possible here? And why should at least we not try? Fair enough. Yeah, I I, I hope you're right. Um, I kind of see the U.S. as kind of our own. We're the first colony of, our, of the global hege hegemon, right? Yeah. We don't really have power to affect positive change domestically. Yeah. And so, yeah, if, if Haiti is a fascinating history, and if that's the model, that, that's, that's going to be difficult to, to, to get up to. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope one day we can rise to their level. I really do. I really do. But I agree. There's plenty of reasons for, for pessimism. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Okay. Pierre. And to speak, you have to press the button in the bottom right, the microphone. Right. There you go. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I observe a lot of the undercurrents of the discussion going on with Ukraine and Russia that, that you have and that also – you know, Glenn Greenwald uh, similarly have. Um, and I feel like there's a lack of discussion of the agency on parts of Ukraine and Russia. Um, most of it is centered around terms like proxy wars and using Ukrainians as cannon fodder, but very little consideration is made of what Ukrainians actually want and that consideration. Um, and then also when the invasion started, there was a lot of discussion, rightly so, about NATO and the history of NATO expansion. But there was, a, I feel like, a downplaying, if not completely being mum about the, the actual fact that Russia invaded. They were the invaders. Um, and that rather than contextualization, it turns into effectively excusing Russia for that action. So I think there's an overemphasis in general on American centrism um, explanations of the world, which ignores the fact that 
you know, not everything going on around the world is something that the U.S. has orchestrated, and they're not some all-encompassing puppeteer of the world. Okay, I got that. And I've heard this critique uh, a lot. Um, my response to it w- would be, if you're interested, is that um, I, when I hear this about Ukrainian agency and denying the agency of the Ukrainian people, what has been ignored in the U.S. is that there are a lot of Ukrainians who don't agree with the U.S. policy. And it's a very divided country. And the U.S. policy, the insanity to me of the U.S. policy, has been trying to basically just pretend that Ukraine is not a very divided country, divided between people who really don't like Russia and identify strongly with the West and want to be a part of the European Union. But there's also, unfortunately for the U.S., been a large contingent that speaks Russian, that is ethnic Russian, that identifies with Russia. And the U.S. policy since 2014, or at least it really escalated in 2014, has been to try to basically um, suppress the preferences of the Russian-speaking side and turn Ukraine, which is on Russia's border, into a Western proxy. And I can't ignore that history. I can't just pretend that Russia woke up one day, or that Putin woke up one day in February and decided to invade because just because he's an imperialist. I don't buy that. There's a whole history that comes before it. There was a coup in 2014, a coup that at the time, the president that was ousted, was still, according to polls, and again, this, that, this speaks to Ukrainian agency if we take that term seriously, according to polls, he was still the most popular uh, politician in the country. And the country was actually deeply divided on whether or not he should stay. There were big protests against him, but those protests were actually uh, you know, taken over by a far-right contingent that led the coup with U.S. backing. And that led to a war in the Donbass in which 14,000 people were killed and peace agreements called the Minsk Accords which Ukraine and the U.S. essentially ignored and undermined. Um, the Ukraine's far right didn't want to follow them. Poroshenko, the president who signed them, recently said that we never actually, he basically admitted that they never had any intention to respect them, that they were used to buy time for the eventual war with Russia. And meanwhile, the U.S. spent a lot of money funding that proxy war and also signing agreements that could further integrate Ukraine into NATO. And if you look at polls in Ukraine historically, the main obstacle to Ukraine's membership in NATO, as one U.S. official put it a few years ago, was actually popular opinion because most Ukrainians did not want to join NATO. Now, in fairness, that number has increased in, re- in recent years. But there is, a, just the, there is a context here where I think that this line about people like myself not respecting Ukrainian agency uh, – it's, I think that line ignores the agency of those Ukrainians who don't go along with the U.S. line. And the U.S. has played, I think, a huge role here that I just can't ignore. Right. And I agree that the U.S. has meddled in ways that is not appropriate. Um, I would say, though, that just because a part of one country is sympathetic to a neighbor, that doesn't give the right of the neighbor to invade. So, for example, if there was, you know, a contingent of pro-American Mexicans on the other side of the border, can we say, well, that gives us the rationalization to invade northern Mexico so that we could take our people back who support us? It's just, it's just not an, an it's just not, if, if you want to go to international norms and the, the norm of not invading neighboring countries, yes, sympathetic, maybe parts of the country, but the notion I mean, it should be America included country. It should not invade country 
whatever okay, here you're cu- you're cutting out a bit so let me just say a few things um i've never justified the invasion i've always said from the start that i think russia's invasion was illegal and while i'm open i'm not going to lie i'm open to the case that they had no other choice because i do think they were backed into a corner i think to justify an invasion you have to meet a very very high burden of proof that i don't think russia has met so i've never justified okay. the invasion i have I, I believe Russia should have tried other diplomatic means to address its grievances before invading. But I also, in fairness, have to admit that they were put in a really, really tough position. And it's possible to me that they had no other option, that this was their best choice. Um, I'm open to that argument. I just haven't seen it made yet. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons to, you know, because people will point out on the pro-Russian side that there was a huge increase in artillery attacks against rebels in the days leading up to Russia's invasion, which signaled to them that Ukraine was about to launch an offensive against the Donbass. And so what Russia did was preemptive. I haven't seen enough evidence for that, but I'm saying that's an argument that is made and I'm open to it. And then, and then there's the fact that basically the U.S. and Ukraine refused to address any of Russia's core concerns, which was Ukraine agreeing to neutrality and um, and agreeing to meaningfully end the war in the Donbass, which they were not prepared to do. So I'm just saying is that, look, and in terms of the analogy to Mexico, if Russia had orchestra- had backed a coup in Mexico, installed a uh, Russian-friendly government, and then encouraged that government and supported it as it waged a war internally against uh, people who were not on the Russian side, the U.S. would have invaded Mexico a long time ago. They never would have waited eight years as Russia did. So Russia would you could actually argue right – Would that have been the right thing it, for the U.S. to do? It would have been the completely – it would have been the thing that they would have done. And, uh, and it, so okay, I'm but saying it wouldn't it, have been right. Well, it, it wouldn't have been right if they had no other options. Uh, what I'm saying is the U.S. would never have tolerated Russia doing in Mexico what the U.S. has been doing in Ukraine. For the last eight years, and whether you think it's right or wrong, it's just the real world, and actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. pursuing – look, the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, a guy named Carl Gershwin, I think his name is something like that. Let me just Google it. Carl Carl Gershwin, yeah. Um, he, said, he wrote uh, in, in the fall of 2013 that Ukraine was, quote, the biggest prize, unquote. And he predicted that if Ukraine could be brought into – the U.S. Or, uh, orbit, that would lead to Putin's downfall. Okay, So he was very clearly articulating a strategy that if we could push regime change in Ukraine, we can actually pursue regime change in Russia. And Russia, in my opinion, has been responding to that policy ever since. Have they done it always in the most prudent way? No. But do they, at a, do they have legitimate con- secu- uh, security concerns there? Yes. And the best authority on that is not me, but it's William Burns, who is now Biden's CIA director. And he, and he wrote a memo on this back in 2008 saying that Ukrainian membership in NATO is a red line for Russia across the political spectrum. And they will react and they warn that if this keeps happening, it will force them one day to intervene. So this has been known for a long time. The U.S. doesn't care because in the liberal world order, they prioritize hegemony over everything else. And so, again... I have to – that doesn't mean Russia is not responsible for all the atrocities it's committed, all the suffering it's caused. It doesn't mean it's justified in invading. But it does mean, though, that the U.S. has a heavy resp- uh, level of responsibility that I'm not going to ignore, especially because that's the 
government that I can impact. I don't live in Russia. I've never been to Russia. And uh, I don't have any influence over Russia, but I do live in the U.S. And so that's what I'm going to – that's whose policies I'm going to try to influence. Okay. Um, all right. Next caller is Ian. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on here. Um, uh, before I kind of jump into my question, I, I had a thought about um, uh, your discussion up here. Um, kind of thinking from an anthropological perspective, there used to be this belief that in like anthropologists would go into these chimpanzee communities and they kind of concluded that there was endemic warfare and all sorts of just like intense violence that would happen between these like chimpanzee tribes. And that became, became kind of like the, I guess our, I guess our um, formulation of how chimpanzee society works. And then a few years later, people realized that these human anthropologists were basically changing the material balance of power in these tribes by introducing bananas. They're like bringing in new resources that were upsetting the balance of the chimpanzee societies. And I think it points to like a general principle that when you have a powerful external force that gets involved in a regional or local um, situation that introduces new facts on the ground, like new resources, etc., it can destabilize the whole thing. And that's why you see like that wherever the U.S. has been in the past, there are all these frozen conflicts. I mean, fortunately, Vietnam like was sort of resolved for the benefit of its people. But, you know, you still have the greater Middle East and, you know, the Korean Peninsula, um, et cetera. So it's like it should make clear sense that in, when the a power dynamic, when you have external um, interference like that, it, it is a source of conflict that wouldn't happen otherwise because there would be a natural balance of power. You know, same with us supporting Israel and the Saudis and stuff like that. Um, but so actually my, my primary question for you is like, so every time I listen to, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's the Biden administration, but really this is like years and years of American foreign policy and even domestic policy establishment. The stuff they say is just insane. Like talking about like going against the direct, like, material interest of Americans mm-hmm. and actually the entire world mm-hmm. for this like proxy war that nobody wants that threatens like life on earth. And like, it's completely insane. And, you know, sometimes I watch, you know, these think tank talks and stuff and try to understand like what the thinking behind all this could be. And, I mean, I sometimes wonder, is it a generational thing from the Red Scare? Is this some kind of, like, eruption of union, uh, like, you know, collective unconscious, like, breaking out into the world and, and you know, bringing darkness or something? Or I, I like, my frustration is I actually just can't understand the way they're thinking. And I mean, I think a lot of people feel like that, too. Yeah. Um because it seems like it's there's sort of this cult and you're you're in it or you're not and i was thinking about like um your discussion with max and michael tracy the other day particularly about natasha bertrand um and how she's just showing up at these press conferences just to lobby for american military bases not even asking questions but as a lobbyist yeah and 
so you're a journalist. Like what I notice in the journalistic profession is either like either you're part of the blob and it makes sense to you or you have the distance to like see things for what they are, but you're also not really part of the club. Absolutely. And uh, like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Cause it's like, if you don't have the proximity, you can't understand what they're thinking. But if you have the proximity, then you're engulfed by the whole thing and you're part of the cult. Yeah. Well, I definitely, I do think it's very cult. Like, I mean, look at Russia gate. Russia gate was to me a, a total cult. That's why I call it blue and on. The, the the right had QAnon, but the liberals had a blue on because, I mean, the most ridiculous premise I've ever heard that the president is a Russian asset being constantly blackmailed with compromise, including a P tape, and that Russian social media trolls are so powerful that they can brainwash Americans into not voting for Hillary and starting riots and sowing other kinds of chaos. I mean, a lot of people believe that. And if you didn't believe it, you were cast out as a traitor, a Russian asset. And it infected, you know, not just, you know, average MSNBC viewers, but this was the predominant view of an entire class of politicians and media figures. And uh, when I think about it psychologically, yeah, a big thing was just this is how, I mean, uh, like materially, this narrative protecting, like like protected their class position because – instead of blaming uniquely American dysfunctions for Donald Trump's election, then you, you, could blame, you could blame it on some outside power, right? Which is very easy for people to do. But in terms of psychologically, you know, just this, it reinforces their membership in a club in which everything is the fault of a foreign power. Our elites are, are you know, wonderful people who were robbed of their rightful place in 2016. Hillary Clinton had to win, and it was only due to foreign subversion that she was denied that and it's a cult it's a complete cult and um it's you know uh, i try to always you know adopt the most good faith interpretation that i can of people's behavior and so for a lot of people in media i don't even think it's a conscious choice i think it's a um i think it's just what they feel they need to do subconsciously to survive you know like i'll tell an anecdote i i the other day, um, I in the Guardian, I was um, called the leading purveyor of disinformation on Syria, A- and uh, the sole source for this claim was a study, which uh, was put out by a think tank called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and something else called the Syria Campaign. And both of these uh, groups are heavily partisan. The first group, the ISD, is funded by the U.S., the U.K., and a bunch of other states that were belligerent in the Syria dirty war. And the second group, the Syria campaign, is just basically it's an outright Syrian opposition front that whitewashes the Syrian insurgency and has backed intervention. So these are not unbiased sources. And their study was a joke because while they called me the leading purveyor of disinformation, they didn't provide a single example of any disinformation that I've spread because they can't. Because what I do is actually factually reporting based on leaks in the OPCW. But anyway, so I called the reporter who did the story. His name is Mark Townsend. And uh, I asked him a couple of questions. I said, um, why didn't you, first of all, why didn't you contact me before printing this, calling me a conspiracy theorist and saying I'm the leading purveyor of disinformation? Why didn't you call me first to give me the right of reply, which is something standard in journalism? If you're going to say something about someone, you have to call them first to get comment. But he didn't. And then I said, can you identify a single piece of disinformation or conspiracy theory that I've spread? And and he refused to answer both questions. And it was very frustrating because he was so evasive. 
But I was looking as I was talking to him. It was on speaker, and you know, I can see his um, avatar, like his profile pic. And his profile pic was of I, you know, people in his family. I think because it wasn't him; it's was people in his family. And so I was thinking, even as I'm talking to this guy who was completely, completely dishonest, who just did something really damaging to me, and that he printed this libelous claim about me. I'm just thinking, you know, this is his job, and this is how he he supports his family, you know. And I just imagine when you apply that, you know, at every single level, it's just when you need to, when you want to have a job, as most people do, you want to do meaningful work, you want to be a part of something, you want to support yourself, you have to make compromises. And for people in media, especially, this is the this is the unfortunate choice that people are put in, and so many people just choose to compromise and be a part of the cult. And those of us who don't make that choice, will, you know, have to be called names and slandered because we, because we take a different direction. That's, I mean, for a lot of us, a pretty difficult compromise. One that, I mean, there's like a, a moral compromise and beyond that, an intellectual compromise. And I, I don't know, like maybe we're just freaks and like, you know, we don't have sort of malleability in those, in those areas. But, um, I guess with that, I mean, do you think that, that, I mean, I, maybe using the careerist or class analysis, you think we can actually understand, I guess, like what consciousness they're in enough to influence things? Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, I'd like to think so, right? But I, uh, it's tough. Like, it's just, you know, and then also, then, and then there also becomes a limit in how much we can, like, how to approach people. Do we condemn them, shame them? Shame works sometimes, but I also like to believe that, you know, everyone's responsible for how they look to themselves in the mirror, right? So when you, sh- you know, you, like you can call people sellouts and tools, all that stuff, but it's just like, you know, and you can judge them harshly. But, you know, I also don't know, every, everyone's got a different life story and maybe people have reasons for basically selling out, you know? I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. It's hard. I think some people must be just hungrier than others. Uh, I mean, there's like family stuff too, but, uh, sometimes it's like the need for approval or some kind of psychological validation that tips you over the edge. You know, I definitely think there's, there's like, I think it's, I think it's a whole host of these factors. I think it's survival, wanting to have a career, wanting to be a part of something. And yeah, but then also like you get into wanting to be approved, wanting to be liked. I mean, that's a major, like with Russia gate, that was a major problem is people wanted to be liked and if you were to be calling bullshit on that scam, you weren't liked. And so that just shut people up. You yeah. know, that's how it works. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Okay. Uh, next caller is Fred. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Hi. Um, first time caller. Um, I w- you were saying Rokana, um, they were kind of believing that uh, Russia wanted to, um, invade kiev and because of that because russia could not do that the advocating for diplomacy i think that's a win-win though for for everyone if progressives are going to advocate for um, diplomacy then this war can end right uh yes absolutely i mean if if rokana and his colleagues are prepared to actually do something uh put forward a measure in congress and you know lobby like like put like put their money where their mouth is not just give these random statements to washington post but do something we'll see i mean maybe i mean as a previous caller said it's unlikely that anything is going to change the you you know the people in the biden administration are such 
I mean, they're all neocons. I don't see anyone there who's not a neocon. And when you're a neocon, you just can't see anything else but hegemony. <laughs> uh, Noam Chomsky has a great book called Hegemony or Survival. That's the choice that we're in right now, hegemony or survival. And these people are always choosing hegemony. So I don't, I'm not optimistic that anything will change, but at least people like Rokana should be trying now that they recognize, as Rokana said, that this is wreaking havoc on the global economy. So that, that's a good realization. He should do something about it. Okay. And one more thing for, um, for the developing world, right? So the leaders, aren't they seeing the suffering that people are going through so they can advocate for peace or something? Because like in Africa and South America, if they can't get gas and they know it's kind of related to Russia's um, sanctions and stuff, won't you advocate for your people? Like nothing makes sense nowadays. No, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And, and what's happening in the global south is horrible. And um, But look, that's also why you have not seen so many countries line up behind the U.S. because they know the damage it does to their own countries. So, okay. So, Paul, let's move on to the next call. So, Fred, thanks for the call. And, Paul, you are next. I realize the queue is longer than I really realized. So I'll try to get to as many calls as I can. Paul, go ahead. And, Paul, if you're there, there's a microphone button you press in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Hi, Aaron. I'm a big fan. Um, uh, so I'm calling from uh, Redding, California, uh, Shasta County, a uh, very red district uh, yeah. here in California, Northern California. In fact, uh, this January 6th thing was almost started here uh, a few weeks before when uh, this uh, red-blue coalition went to the Board of Supervisors and threatened to hang people. And wow. ultimately recalled, uh, they ultimately recalled Republicans who yeah. uh, were uh, wanted to follow uh, public health guidelines. Um, and um, um, my, uh, my family, my significant other uh, is uh, runs women's uh, health clinics here uh, uh, three of them within about 150 miles of Reading and uh, so the uh, the women and their allies started to organize when these um, uh, decisions came down and um, they uh, they came up with a a grassroots uh, movement, and it's called No Money Mondays. And I sent you, uh, I tried to send you the uh, uh, Shasta Abortion Coalition's uh, press release for their movement. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you and uh, maybe your listeners if they could go to uh, um, Shasta Abortion Coalition, where, uh, which is one of the groups that's organizing here in the okay, county. Okay, Paul, Paul, As, Paul, what's the, what, what's the website name? It, there's no website at the moment. Right now, the website, there's, okay. there's, there's a press release that's called, okay. that is, so, and their Twitter, their Twitter handle is mm-hmm. Shasta Abortion Coalition. And if you go to that Twitter site, uh, you'll see the press release for no more. No okay, so, money so money. 
So, so Shasta Abortion Coalition, that's what it's called on Twitter? Yes. Okay. Paul, thank you for the call. And you'll find a... Okay. All right. And another Paul. You're up. Hey, Paul. This, <laughs> hey, Paul. Hey, Aaron. <laughs> this is Paul. Um, I, uh, I talked to you and uh, Katie a little while ago. I wanted to uh, uh, echo some of what has been said about NATO and kind of this this insanity. I think it really ties in with your dad's work on trauma, you know, that, that people just get their needs met in very strange ways when they've been traumatized. And we have a, a certain class of people that would rather hang on to their power than um, ensure that the planet exists yeah. peacefully. And I, I think that's uh, it's deeply rooted in, uh, in whatever happened to them, you know, in their in their uh, childhoods or whatever. Um, so I thought that comment was really interesting about, you know, com- anthropologically what is going on when, when a group of people doesn't work for the existence of the whole, but works for an existence of their, their own tribe based on an injection of, of resources. And I thought this was really interesting. I, I've talked to you about the situation in uh, Congo, Rwanda, and Uganda before several times now. But Jimmy Dore just did a segment on a massive gold find in Uganda. And this is on the heels of a massive oil find in Uganda. Hmm. And then, um, you know, and that ties in with massive oil, uh, oil, uh, diamonds, minerals that were found in Congo. And the injection of the West to come in and basically try and extract those, uh, you know, both parties. But uh, I wanted to alert you to this video. If you have a chance to look at it on uh, Jimmy Dore's comments are really illustrative of like how Americans, even on the left, are so uh, unaware of, of what's going on. So the comment that Jimmy was saying was, hey, I bet uh, we're going to go in and invade Uganda and install democracy soon because all this gold got discovered and, and all the uh, basically you know, most most of the YouTube comments or jokes around that. Right. So, Paul, way. Paul, if you can, if you can drop a link to that Jimmy segment in the comments, and people can check that out if they oh. uh, if they're interested. Yeah, sure. I'd be I'd be happy to. And you know, I I mentioned the uh, the story on Patrice Lumumba's tooth being returned um, to Congo, and uh, the comments. It's very interesting to watch that Jimmy Dore has pointed out numerous times that the CIA does like horrible shit. And then it can come into the main Western media, but only decades later. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. so Washington Post is even covering Patrice Lumumba's tooth being returned. Yes. And, 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 this, uh, and, and, and when was he killed? It was 60 years ago? 50 years um, ago? It was, the, there's a very interesting photo of Kennedy with his hand on his head with the, his phone. Yeah. And yeah. he's like collapsed into that was the moment that he learned that his government had assassinated Patrice Lumumba. So that would be 60 Patrice years Lumumba ago. Patrice Lumumba was a friend of his. Yeah, as, so it got ordered yeah. under the Eisenhower administration right. that happened right as Kennedy was taking office. And right. it was part of that cluster of assassinations, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, the Kennedys, yeah. uh, you know, all that. So it's all very much related. Yeah, it is. Paul, thank you for the call. Thank you. Oh, sure. No problem. Take okay. care. Bye. All right. Amanda. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Um, I'm not trying to catch you off guard, and I haven't heard you talking about it, but I heard in passing on the news that in Israel they dissolved their parliament. 
Did you uh-huh. hear that? Do you know anything about it? I don't, but this happens uh, often in Israel because you have to have a coalition oh. government. And, uh, you know, usually this happens regularly in Israel. So I don't think oh, that's... Okay. I just I mean, got excited. Yeah. I thought they dissolved their parliament. Maybe we could dissolve our Congress. Oh, yeah. No, I, 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 I wouldn't get your hopes up. I wouldn't okay. get your hopes up. I mean, uh, well, um, you know, a, a girl can hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. All right. Aaron, you there? Yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, so, Aaron, uh, what do you th- think is the mindset of people like uh, Deese who state so callously that the masses have to uh, weather the high cost? and massive disruption to their life for this liberal world order, which it, in itself sounds very much like what the far right has said on a multitude of uh, times, like the globalist system. Yes. You know which, you know which route that globalist system is uh, going to next uh, lead to. Mm. And um, do they, I mean, do they not realize how violent and armed the U.S. society is? They talk about January 6th being like a Pearl Harbor uh, when uh, they they're themselves creating a situation that will uh, make January six feel like a D- Disneyland when people get pushed to the limits. I mean, do they think? Well, uh, they don't. Like- they, they don't care, and they see themselves as as insulated from any impact of their own policies. They live in these elite bubbles. They live in coastal cities like D.C. and New York and Los Angeles, and so they, they don't care. It doesn't enter their mind the idea that they could be impacted. I mean, they live in a world where Hunter Biden can get appointed to a lucrative energy board seat in Ukraine and without knowing shit, without knowing shit, that's yeah. their world. So, so why would they think that there'd be consequences for anything that they do? They just don't care. But still, I, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, uh, I, you're right. But I just think of like, okay, just from a survival for you perspective, if you're, Basically, uh, it reminds me of what Malcolm X said during his ballot and bullet speech, where uh, it's like when a domestic powder keg goes off, it's far more explosive than an atomic powder keg. And, and I think uh, of that, and, and I'm like, what are we? What are these guys even uh, thinking? But uh, anyways, that was. I mean, I I just was like, okay, I just don't get it. I'm like, you're playing with a fire. Uh, I mean, with fire. In this case, so absolutely, I I don't get it either. But that's what makes them them and us us. <laughs> okay, know? well, thank you so much, Aaron. Have a great rest of your Sunday. You too. You too. Okay, bye bye. Okay, Cr. Hey, Aaron, how's it going? Hi there. Um, so I, I have a kind of funny question. This might be a little closer, but I think it's pretty straightforward. So people often in in America uh, think Democrat Republican is a difference between those that you and I know that they serve the same people. So it's not, it doesn't really matter which way, you know, you choose. So I wonder in the same way that I kind of feel like Democrats and Republicans play heel for each other back and forth. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh, like the Democrats want to lose because then they could fundraise off. You know what I mean? They just right. go back and forth. They don't, they don't mind that problem. Right. That's, that's, that's fine for both parties. Yeah. Uh, um, I wonder to a certain degree, cause we're playing around with nu- like like all these other callers that are playing around with nuclear powers. Is there really maybe something here where we have an understanding with Russia, where like they're playing the heel right now, and then like later on they're gonna like maybe we're gonna like you know band with them and go against China or what? You know what I mean? Like sometimes I feel like we're being so fucking brazen. Mm. You know what I mean? With with a dude that supposedly is dying right now. Yeah. That there's reports coming out. 
So all the more reason to fucking, you know, shoot some nukes off before you fucking <laughs> die, right? So I kind of feel like they have to, they, our, 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 our world leaders can't be so fucking stupid. That they they got to know that they have some inside information like, oh, no, Putin's playing heel and then later we'll play heel and we'll go back and forth just like the Democrats and Republicans. Does that sound plausible? I mean, I, I think there is a convergence of interest. Certainly Russian elites will do fine off of this war. Um, and for Putin, I mean, this war has helped him a lot. He's more popular than before. It's forced a lot of wealthy Russians to bring their money home because they're no longer welcome in the West. Um, you know, it's doing good. Yeah. The, the rule is doing amazing. So you could argue that. And, and then meanwhile, you know, in NATO with what comes to like the U S and NATO, Putin deciding to invade has been great for them. I mean, their, their sales have never been higher. It's a great, yeah. it's a great time. But in terms of an actual understanding, I don't think so. I mean, I, the way I see the U S is anyone who's a deterrent to U S hegemony has to be crushed. And that's why the U S I think has been messing with Ukraine. That's why, that's a factor why they're still in Syria, you know, occupying one yeah. third of Syria is because they want to deny Russia a victory there. And actually, James Jeffrey says that James Jeffrey, who was Trump's top official for Syria, has said that we have to deny Russia a victory in Syria, because, again, yeah. in Syria, that's where Russia interfered with the U.S. dirty war. So they have to pay. That's, the price. But that's what those hawks do. They saber rattle these hawks, you know. But yes, no, my, my point was more my more point was towards the nuclear, the mutually shared destruction point. Of us actually poking a fucking you know uh, 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 a country with nuclear weapons and and so and a quote unquote dying crazy guys they love to portray them in the in the Western media to me I feel like if you're going to play that game you have to have some thought that like nah he's not going to really do it we're just going to keep playing this stupid global chess game and to me it, it, that almost seems more cynical because you're just you're you're literally treating everybody's lives and countries just like fucking pawn pieces. Does that, you know, does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Look, uh, Trump, the genius, dismantled arms control <laughs> tr- arms control treaties that eliminated entire classes of nuclear weapons, and he dismantled them. He yeah. and that was that, and that was John Bolton's doing. Because John Bolton started that with Bush in two thousand two when he killed the anti-ballistic missile treaty. So Bolton comes back on Trump and picks up where he left off. And yeah, these people know that they're. Uh, I mean, in terms of an understanding that Russia actually won't use nukes if it feels its interests are threatened, I don't think so. I think they're willing to gamble with all that. That's how crazy they Damn. are. Damn. Yeah. That's the thing that actually fucking scares me. But th- thank you for answering my question, brother. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be. Uh, I mean, who knows what is really going on? But that's just my guess. No, I, I mean that's that's pretty much all we can do. Uh, but yeah, thank you yeah. for my call. All right, thanks for the call. Okay, Mark. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, responding to an earlier caller who was talking about, um, you know, Ukrainian, um, you know, the Ukrainian people's say and all of, all of you know, the, the whole war situation. Um, it's not like they didn't vote in um, ethnic Russians. Uh, you know, Poroshenko and you know, Zelensky was from the, the east of the country as well. And, you know, they promised during their election campaigns that uh, they were going to um, to make peace with Russia. I, I think Poroshenko said he could sort out the problem in, in an hour. You know, he, right, could, right. he could call up Putin and uh, the problem would be gone. There would be no more threat of war. And they just went back on that. Yep. 
So, yeah, I, that, that's what I wanted to say. Man. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, and I wrote an article recently about how Zelensky was elected on this historic mandate for peace, you know, more than 70% of the vote. There was hope across the country on both sides of the war that the war would end, and he didn't do anything. He he tried a little, he made a few gestures toward ending the war, but ultimately he he let the far right of Ukraine win, and that's because the U.S. had no interest in letting peace happen. They wanted to continue the proxy war, and so that's and you know, um, but people who talk about Ukrainian agency often ignore that part, and we're just supposed to believe that the side that the U.S. promotes happens to be the purest expression of the Ukrainian people, but the reality is a lot is a lot different, I think. Yeah, and, you know, I was just thinking about this before. Maybe um, from a, a U.S. perspective, if people thought, you know, what if January 6th succeeded <laughs> and, um, you know, Trump came in and, and then every Democrat subsequently uh, just... Um, you know, implemented uh, a Trumpist agenda. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that, that's the situation Ukraine is in, basically. Yep. yep. All right, Mark, thank you for the call. And uh, Lori, you are up. And Lori, if you're there, yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> First time using this platform. Um, yeah, I'm calling from Montana. Um, and first, I just want to say, Aaron, I'm. Um, just in awe of your work and your courage and, and thank you so much for what you do um, and covering these stories. Um, thank you. I, um, I was, I was wondering, I, I was reading about um, the German, the German chancellor's um, speech at the end of the NATO summit um, where he's really committing a lot of forces and, and just really rattling, rattling the sabers um, and it. um, sort of traumatized me um, <laughs> because I, I was under the impression that Germany and France were more pushing for diplomacy. Um, yeah. I'm just, I'm just wondering if you have any insight in, in what's happening there. Yeah. I don't know much about German politics, but I, it strikes me that Schultz is just completely clueless. Angela Merkel was not a fan of Russia, but she understood that her country's well-being you know, resided on having a friendly relationship with Russia because of their proximity and just because, you know, Russian energy was so important to Germany's functioning. And so she kind of kept that going really well. She never took Russia's side, but she effectively allowed for a pretty stable relationship. And uh, then Schultz comes in and, like, you know, already he's facing the U.S. trying to destroy the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that started under Trump actually started probably started under Obama and then Trump and then Trump picked it up and then Biden comes in and um, yeah and Schultz was resisting Biden getting him to pledge to kill Nord Stream 2 uh, if Russia invaded so he at least showed a little bit of backbone there but as soon as Russia invaded he just completely caved on everything and he started sending you know Germany has a history of not sending weapons uh, that could be used to fight Russia because of the history of Nazi Germany invading Russia and killing millions of people. But Schultz backed down on that too. And uh, now it's causing problems. I, I quoted earlier the head of the Germany's, uh, uh, G- Germany's top union leader saying that this could wipe, you know, because we can't get Russian gas, this could wipe out entire industries. Because what Russia is doing, 
Russia is shutting down, or, or like at least Russia has actually been slowing its gas deliveries to places like Germany because Russia is saying if you're going to get behind this massive sanctions war against us and fund a proxy war against us, then we're not going to give you energy. And so people in Europe are still – leaders are still outraged at Russia for doing that. And also because the U.S. helped kill the Nord Stream 2, now Russia actually has can, – can more easily slow gas because they're actually going to bring gas to a complete halt soon for maintenance. And because Nord Stream 2 is dead, there's no other way to, to deliver it. And the, I, who knows even if Russia will turn the faucet back on. And that's that's leading people like that union leader to warn that this could mm-hmm. cost tens of thousands of jobs. And so what what is guiding the thinking of leaders in Germany? Why are they willing to sacrifice their own economy just for the sake of a proxy war? It, it's, beyond, it's beyond me. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but it's it's, it's crazy. Yeah, thanks. I can't imagine why people in Europe are behind the war. It seems like they are. Is that true? Uh, I don't know. I haven't looked at the polls. I have plenty of friends in Europe who I, I think have bought into a lot of the propaganda about Russia, and so they do support the war, even yeah. though it's going to impact them, you know, especially, I mean, for now in the summertime, it's manageable, but in next winter, if this continues... And you know, they don't have heat. I mean, then it's going to be a real problem. Um, so, be, yeah, to the extent there's support, I think uh, that's, to me, in my opinion, that's a reflection of just the insane propaganda that we've gotten about Russia and the complete suppression of diplomatic alternatives, which have existed for a long time. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Andrew. Hi, Aaron. I just had one quick question for you. If the Ukraine war doesn't end by November, um, which I think is a safe assumption, do you think there's any chance that the Democrats will in any way uh, diverge, I mean, um, from the current line on this? No, no, I don't. Okay. They're they're completely captured by Russiagate mania, and I just don't see that changing. So then you would say that's higher than a priority to get elected, even? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Now, isn't yeah. this a paradox in the sense that they would say the Republicans are also a threat to the liberal world order, considering they're a party of terrorists and whatnot? It seems like they've kind of painted themselves in a weird corner in that line of logic. Well, I mean, yeah, nothing they say makes sense. They were calling Trump Putin's puppet as Trump was presiding over a neocon foreign policy that massively escalated tensions with Russia killing arms control treaties, forcing NATO members to spend more on their militaries, which uh, is not something Russia wants, to say the least. So, yeah, but but this is the problem when you're in a cult and you're captured by derangement is you just can't see, think clearly and you can't even think about the political consequences of your actions. It's just that everything is subordinate to the cult orthodoxy, which is basically Russia mania and supporting hegemony. Yeah, well, I agree completely that nothing they say makes sense. And the blue anon term is great and more people should use it. Thanks for your time. Thanks. I, I intend to popularize it as much as I can. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. And I'll be back next time. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye, everybody.